Welcome to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted we're spending this time here today. We have a very inspiring show coming right up with author Shane Snow. And we're going to be talking about his new book, Dream Teams, Working Together Without Falling Apart. Now, Shane is a science and business journalist and the co-founder of Contently, one of INC's fastest growing companies and listed as one of Crane and Adage's best places to work in America. His writings have appeared in The New Yorker, Wired, The Washington Post, Fast Company, Time, and GQ. His first book, Smart Cuts, made him a highly sought-after speaker, and he traveled the world speaking on innovation and lateral thinking. So let's welcome to the show, Shane. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, what a pleasure it is to have you here, and what a fabulous book. I absolutely loved your book. Oh, that's so nice of you. It, uh, it was a lot of work and a lot of people that made it good. It was not not just me. In fact, mostly not me, <laughs> but I'm, I'm really <laughs> glad to hear that. Well, that would kind of go against the whole principle of dream teams anyway, right? <laughs> you know, you with a book, it's like there's one person's name is on the cover, but any book that's any good has an editor and it has stories that are about other people. You know, I'm writing other people's stories. I'm, you know, I'm building off of research that's been going on for decades. And uh, so it, it feels hardly fair to take all the credit. But it is also in line with, uh, with what I wrote about is, uh, you know, teamwork. Everything that we do actually is much more involved with collaboration than we, we often think about, even behind the scenes. You know, if it's just things that we're working on by ourselves, we're never doing anything great alone. Yeah, that isn't that the truth? My goodness. And, you know, so this brings up kind of like, I've got tons of questions. I you know, hope we can get through some of these today. If not, we'll just have to bring you back to talk about the rest of them. All but, right, I'm in. You know, with, <laughs> yeah, we'll sign you up for that. But um, so with this topic, I mean, what started your interest in even kind of, you know, diving into teams and teamwork? It's one of those things where it wasn't just one kind of event that happened. There were a lot of little things that sort of led up to me writing this book. But I think that most books that are – most nonfiction books that are worth being a whole book, you know, 300 pages, uh, they tend to connect a lot of dots. You know, you can't just tackle sort of one little bitty thing. And uh, And so what happened with this – is I was noodling on a whole bunch of different things that uh, but some of them I realized that there were patterns. And the main pattern was when you have groups of people and they come together and they're not all the same, you either get conflict and chaos and sort of all the problems we have in the world or you get wonderful innovation and magic. And I started seeing that a lot of places – um, you know, in the history of you know great breakthroughs in you know science and art, looking at the history of you know battles that are fought in underdog armies, and even in buddy cop movies, you know where where two unlikely partners end up defeating huge odds, and I started noticing that pattern, and and so that was going on. Another thing that was happening is I I started a company with a couple of friends about eight years ago, and. Uh, and a couple years in, I realized that my job had changed. I used to be, you know, the guy who builds stuff and who makes decisions and, and uh, you know, feeling pretty important about my role in the creative process. And a couple of years in, I realized that 
my role really was the guy who finds other people to build stuff and helps them make decisions. And, uh, and I was kind of insecure about my ability to be that kind of leader and picking the right people and helping them do their best work. And, and I started noticing the same thing that I just mentioned happening in my own company where people who are very different, you know, in particular, you know, one that jumps out at me is we had this German head of product and, uh, and this Korean head of design. And they were very different just in their communication style, the way that they thought, um, just sort of their not just their personalities, but uh, but the way they thought about what we were building. And there was a lot of sort of friction between that those different ways of thinking, and yet they made the most beautiful things together. And, uh, and, and they were both really good at not letting it get personal. And I saw in that just sort of this dream example of this paradox, you know, different human beings coming together, and, uh, and it's uncomfortable, but that's where all sorts of possibilities come from. So this is sort of the simple sort of mythological version of, uh, of what ended up becoming my exploration of human collaboration that became dream teams. But there are lots of those sorts of things that I started noticing. And one final thing I'll say, I, uh, I grew up in Idaho in the desert and we were there because my father worked at a uh, nuclear test facility. He was an engineer there. And so I grew up with this storyline about how, all these different scientists from all over the world, Russians and Americans and Germans and French and men and women, old and young, from all sorts of different disciplines, put their heads together and helped us harness the atom. And that this is this energy source that, you know, just spat out steam. And my dad's job actually was to design the canisters that contained the spent nuclear fuel to make that safe and not pollutive. And so I had this storyline about how all these people came together and made this energy source that uh, that could be really transformative and also how that energy source works itself as an analogy for what they did little particles crashing together to make heat and uh, and then as an adult <clears throat> a few years ago while I was thinking about team more concerned to you know play with these ideas I uh, I learned that uh, you know the same thing that put food on our table the same thing that you know we sort of celebrated at my house around you know the story of nuclear energy is also the number one most likely thing that's going to ruin everything. And, uh, you know, I, I spent some time with some researchers who study the chances of, uh, of nuclear war happening and, you know, the game theory behind it. And I got kind of freaked out because it is actually quite possible. And we've taken this technology and pointed it at each other. And, uh, and it's really concerning. And so I sort of freaked out about, you know, that paradox is sort of the most dramatic version of the same paradox of, we create all sorts of possibilities because different humans can smash together and, and make things, but also we are threatened by each other and, and we, we also create our own sort of greatest risk because of it. So all of these things were swirling in my head and I decided to write a book, sort of a pop science book about subtle things that happen between humans that can make us better rather than worse together. Um, but there, there was a period of time where I thought I was going to write a book, uh, write a book about the end of the world. And, uh, uh, I don't think that, that many people would enjoy reading that one versus one that's a little more inspiring. Well, I'm so glad that you wrote Dream Teams because I found it to be quite profound, especially with the different viewpoints that you bring together in this. And so when you were 
you know, doing your research and pulling all this information in, how long did it take you to, um, you know, just kind of develop the information for the book? It was a long time. So I, I had an editor at Wired Magazine who, when I was real new in my journalism career, he gave me this talk where he basically said, great writing is only one-third writing. The other two-thirds are research and thinking. And, you know, if you're a reporter, then the research is interviews and all of that. And I really took that to heart with this book. I've, I've tried to keep that in mind, but this one in particular, it was two years of reporting and research, interviews going around the world, talking to people, talking to leaders of teams, talking to people who study human collaboration and, you know, the neuroscience of empathy and these things that have to do with, you know, when humans come together. And uh, so two years of that. And then a long time outlining, my friends thought that I was losing my mind. I would put sticky notes on every surface, every wall, every window, just, uh, you know, kind of reorganizing my notes and, and my thoughts, trying to condense and coalesce these ideas and, uh, and, and then, you know, find the right stories that can tell these lessons in entertaining ways. And then I spent two months actually writing the manuscript. So years of, of work preparing, but then once I knew exactly what I wanted to say, and that was really the hard part, um, and, you know, kind of memorizing my notes, and, and I, uh, I think that I was told that Michael Lewis did, does this too. He's the guy that did The Big Short and, uh, and uh, some of those, you know, really great pop business books that uh, he sort of memorizes his notes, and then he sits down and write, writes. But what I did is I went to South America by myself, sat down in coffee shops and I wrote for 14 hours a day, which is sort of fits my personality. I really love doing that, just getting into a flow. But because I didn't have to think about what I was going to say, I'd already done all that prep work. It was just sort of, you know, words coming out of my fingers. And then I had, you know, nine months of self-doubt and revisions and help with, uh, <laughs> with several editors. And, uh, you know, I, I have this buddy, Frank, who's this guy that lives in Bermuda. That's just the funniest human being. And, uh, you know, I would send my drafts to him so that he could tell me what's not funny and he could tell me places where I could make it more clever and entertaining. And, you know, so that process of just having people help me workshop this thing, uh, that took a long time. But the actual writing was uh, was fairly quick. I think that the hardest things were actually not finding the stories. The hardest things were going through kind of the, the scientific method of you know figuring out I, I wanted I, you know I had all these questions and uh, you know scientific method you kind of make an observation then you ask a question and then you conduct an uh, you make a hypothesis conduct an experiment and then write your conclusions I tried to do that with uh, all of these questions around these facets of human collaboration and uh, and it's it's tough to be rigorous about that and be scientific about that when you have all of these things in your head that we've grown up with all these ideas like two heads are better than one and we need shared values and, you know, working with your friends makes things go better. And, and these things that are sort of, we just naturally think are true and actually putting those to test and, and all those things that I mentioned are actually, you know, usually not true. It turns out when you, you put them to the test, but, uh, but going through that scientific method of breaking down principles of teamwork and then also taking a look at new scientific studies that are coming out around, neuroscience and psychology as it has to do with collaboration or, you know, groups and, you know, people being suspicious of each other and all that. 
and using that to kind of reassess old norms that we have. Um, all of that was extremely difficult and fascinating and, and almost, I'm just rambling at this point, but, but for me, almost uh, <laughs> anticlimactic at some points when by the time I get to writing it, I'm like, well, you know, that's obvious now that you see it, uh, which, you know, is okay, but, uh, but it's sort of crazy how much work goes into you know, coming up with, with things and, and finding insights and making conclusions that then once you see them, you're like, yeah, all right, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made your book not only thought-provoking but also entertaining in many ways. You oh, know, thank you. You talk about – oh, yeah, I mean, my goodness, you talk about, like, soccer clubs and stars and games and uh, pirates, like how these all have something in common. And most people are like, oh, I'm not really kind of feeling that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you bring about these analogies that people can look at and go, hmm, okay, well, that makes sense. Well, uh, thank you for saying that. I uh, A couple of things kind of come to mind when you talk about that. One is uh, I have so many friends who are, are authors, and I, I hate to say this out loud, but I hate most business books. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, this this book is something that will, you know, a lot of business people will read. I'm hoping that, you know, it gets applied to business, but also, you know, beyond that, people who are interested in, you know, in uh, in this stuff just generally. But a lot of business people will, will probably read this book. And I hate business books. And so I didn't want to write something that felt like, uh, you know, a, a manual or, you know, because it's very easy for this kind of topic. And this topic has been done really well in, in more businessy ways. So I wanted to write something that I would actually not get bored with, which is one of my key things that I asked uh, readers that were, you know, helping me review drafts. You, you know, you send your manuscript to people, or you send chapters to people and say, what do you think? Tell me, you know, give me feedback. Instead of asking uh, a lot of people for ideas on what to change, a lot of people I just said, mark the parts where you got bored. And uh, and so, you know, there was a lot of that in early drafts. And, you know, having people identify where they get bored, that's great, because then I can change that. I can figure out what to do from there. I can work with my editors. Uh, but the other thing that I'll say is, uh, you know, books should be entertaining. And uh, and I think it's possible to, to make something fun. But even just for me to not get bored, that was important. But I really like cinema, and I really like certain filmmakers sort of style and building up kind of drama, even in, you know, in topics that are, are not necessarily, you know, inherently um, dramatic or, or nail biting. And, uh, and so I've, I've done a lot of sort of crazy outlining of, you know, I'll watch TV shows or I'll watch movies and I'll actually take notes. Again, this is when my friends think I'm crazy. I'll take notes while I'm watching a movie to, uh, to just kind of, uh, take in, you know, what's the way that the director or the, you know, the screenwriter or the storyteller actually weaves the plot together to make it uh, so that you don't want to quit. And one of my favorites uh, is J.J. Uh, Abrams. He's the guy that did Alias and Lost and the new Star Wars movie uh, movies, I guess. He's produced those. And, uh, and, you know, his stuff is all like science fiction and, you know, kind of inherently uh, entertaining anyway. But the way that he structures his plots of his shows i've I've made spreadsheets and spreadsheets out of jj abrams and uh and so what i'll do when i'm i'm writing you know something like a book or a long article 
I'll have the stories that I want to tell, I'll have the research that I want to, you know, get across, and then I'll actually go to some of my outlines where I, you know, that I'm ripping off of, you know, movies and TV shows that I'll, I love and say, well, what if I told this story in the way that, you know, JJ did this episode? And so that's where some of these, uh, I don't know if you notice, the, the chapters kind of have different structures to them, but there'll be, you know, storyline A and then a cliffhanger, and then storyline B, that's a very different thing, and a cliffhanger, and then storyline C, that sort of reveals the uh, kind of the, the secret to what happened in storyline B, and then we'll finish storyline B, and then it turns out, surprise, storyline B actually tells us something that's the secret to storyline A, and we finish that up. And uh, uh, in my head, I'm, well, so I'm making hand motions that no one on this show can see, <laughs> but uh, to sort of describe <laughs> this. Um, but I, I love the sort of cinematic approach to storytelling, and so you know, a lot of the stories that I, I told, even if, you know, there's a chapter about uh, corporate mergers, which I want to blow my brains out even thinking about reading a chapter about corporate mergers. Um, but I wove it in with the story of the Wu-Tang Clan and, uh, and you know, research about marriages and, uh, you know, and couples therapy and fighting. And, um, and it's, uh, it's probably my favorite chapter in the book, even though, you know, Corporate mergers are interesting only to people who do corporate mergers, but uh, but that's because I you know I, I sort of mapped it to I forget whose plot line I actually mapped that one to, but I you know I mapped it to someone else's film style, and uh, and this once again is you know nothing nothing interesting was done alone. I I borrowed someone's structure that they use in a movie in my book, and they'll never know. And uh, and they probably learned that structure from someone else in film school or some other director that they loved. And, you know, the change just keeps going. Wow. I'm so glad you you approach writing the way that you do because it does make it entertaining. Corporate mergers, sometimes the people involved in that don't even want to be knowledgeable about that at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I wish I could be someplace, you know, someplace else because, you know, it can be a very – um, this is a boring topic. And I know a lot of our readers out there, I mean, I've got a few myself, you know, when you pick up business books sometimes, you're kind of going over some of the same information and while you're hearing it or reading it, it doesn't necessarily stick. And I found with your book, you know, there was, it, it was structured in such a way that not only was it entertaining, but like the points made them made themselves across where the readers picking up going, okay, well I get this, this makes sense, you know. Uh, well, thank you. I I love that you say that. So there's uh, I'm gonna nerd out a little bit. There's actually science behind that idea. So you know, neuroscience has shown <laughs> that uh, <laughs> neuroscientists have shown that certain kinds of stories help us remember things better and help us care about things. And uh, it, they have this saying that I, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something like neurons that fire together wire together, and that's their their little saying that they use to, to say basically the more of your brain that's active at a given time, the more connections will form, and the, basically these neural pathways kind of stay there and help you remember things, and uh, or help you sort of access information for later that's useful, and it turns out that. A story is just generally going to have more neurons fire in your brain than, you know, a chart or a PowerPoint presentation or someone telling you, you know, facts. Um, and, uh, and the more you can have an emotional connection to the story, 
the the more of your brain lights up also, and the more your brain actually also cares. It's this little chemical called oxytocin that your brain secretes when uh, you have a, a positive social exper- experience, like someone hugs you, or you know you you have a child, and, and your brain just is overwhelmed with sort of love and empathy for this child. But it also happens when you hear or see or learn a story of a human being that you can kind of relate to emotionally in some way. And, uh, and so all of that you know, kind of science explains why, why we love stories in the first place, why you know, that's part of what makes us human and fun. And, but also that was a, a survival mechanism where you know, we had to survive together in tribes and around campfires. And you know, we built things and, and learned to protect ourselves together. That's why you know, the tigers didn't eat us. And, uh, and our brains needed, you know, mechanisms to help us learn things and remember things and teach them to each other and also to care about each other. And so stories end up being this sort of crazy thing that's built into our brains. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, knowing that I, uh, I, I like to, well, and there's so many good authors out there that have, you know, been doing this much better than me for many, many years and, and whose work I, I study, but I try to make the stories that, uh, you know, if I'm writing about a principle, even that thing that I just told you about, you know, neuroscience and story, mm-hmm. if I'm writing about that, I want to get that across using a, an, a story that, that sparks something in you emotionally. Um, and uh, I think one of the best compliments that uh, you can get as a writer, and someone just texted me this who, who just finished the book, they said they teared up in the last chapter. And if you can make someone do that with uh, with a story that you're telling, you better believe they're going to remember that, and they're going to care enough about it that they'll tell people about it, and they'll you know they'll remember the lesson too. So that's uh, you know that's that's the goal, and I you know one person probably will cry because of this book. <laughs> that's a that's a, uh, that's all right. But if you know any reaction you have, if you laugh, if you smile at something you read, you're going to remember it a little more because more of your brain is lighting up and it's it's making you happy and you're attaching an emotional feeling to this thing that you you just learned and that's going to cause you to remember or at least to remember that there was something there and you can go look it up mm-hmm. and kind of re-review well, and you know and you touched on this a little bit ago you know when you were talking like two heads aren't actually better than one and i'd love for you to expand on that for our audience because you know a lot of times people hear these things and just accept it as truth when it can uh not be further from the truth, you know? Yeah, you know, I've been meaning to look up the etymology of that phrase because we, we all grow up with that. And and maybe it's something mm-hmm. that just, you know, our, our moms say to get us to, to work together. You know, my brother, who was a year and a half younger than me and just as tall as me, so I hated him. You know, we, we fought all the time growing up. And, uh, you know, my mom had to trick us into getting along. <laughs> And uh, actually, a fun aside, one of the things that she did is she orchestrated this ongoing competition of who can read the most books, which simultaneously made us smart and quiet because um, I, I hated clever. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I hated my brother so much that I wanted to beat him at everything. And so I read lots of books and that made me want to be a writer. But, uh, you know, the two heads are better than one. Uh, you know, why do I have to, you know, mow the lawn with Matthew. Why can't he do it? And why do we have to do this together? Why can't he do next week? And I'm going to do this week. You know, my mom would say, well, two heads are better than one. Maybe that's where that comes from. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reality is, 
it's not true. And, you know, math and science kind of prove this out. But if you think back to any group project you ever did in school, any time that you're working on something at work with a group of people, you realize very quickly that a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, when you have a group of people, it's going to be slower going. And, uh, and it's, it's not going to be, sometimes it'll be fun, but if it's fun, it's often not as productive or awesome as you hope it would be. turns out that two heads are not better than one, but they can be. And they can be better than one if they are different. If you have a group of people that all think the same, that group is only going to be as smart as the smartest person in the group. It's not going to get smarter. But if you have a group of people who think differently than each other, then it has the potential to add up to something more. And uh, in the book, I talk about you know, different parts of our mental toolkit, like perspectives, you know, how we encode the world, how we actually see problems, we look at them. Sometimes this is physical. You know, a, a kid will see the world literally differently from a few feet lower to the ground than an adult. Um, someone who's colorblind will literally see the world differently if you, you know, age and handicap and all that have to do with that. But just the way you've lived your life, the experiences you've gone through, the way you've had to navigate the world, the way that you identify, that all affects the way that you encode whatever you're looking at. An analogy that I use that's uh, – uh, I just use it a lot because it's dramatic – is you're walking down the street with a friend and uh, you see a building on fire. You're going to process that differently if you had your house burned down or your friend will process that differently if uh, she's a firefighter. Uh, or if neither of you have had any of those experiences, then you know your perspective on the burning building might be, you know, more similar. But this this is formed by everything you know in our lives, our story. And the other part of our mental toolkit that I talk about is something called heuristics, which is basically your approach to a given situation, your approach to solving a problem. So every situation is different. But uh, you know, uh, one that I, I use in the book when I'm talking about uh, cops is uh, you have a, a lock that you're trying to, to break. Uh, you gotta, you got to get into you know, a room that's locked or a door that's got a padlock on it. Uh, how do you approach breaking in? And your heuristics are sort of your, your rules of thumb or your approach, you know, initial approach to solving the problem or maybe all of your approaches that you've learned. So do you kick the door down? Do you try and saw the lock off? Or uh, do you find the person who has the key and figure out how to compromise them, how to convince them to give you the key? Um, all of those things, our strategies for, for approaching problems, are those are formed by you know our education, not only what we studied, but where we studied, uh, our upbringing, the generation we grew up in, and also things that uh, that are very tied to our demographics and even how we look. So if uh, if you're one race or another, then people will treat you differently or, you know, little micro things or maybe if you grow up in a community where you're the only person of your you know, race or your language that's your original language or whatever other background, um, then people will include you or exclude you in given situations differently than other people in your community. Um, or they might treat you differently or they might be you know, subtly more suspicious or uh, more gracious or whatever it is. You have opportunities or, you know, or whatever. Those all will affect the way that you, you approach things. So in the, in the book, I, I talk about in this cop thing why women cops are so successful and why they add so much to police partnerships and why we need more of them. Um, 
because if you grow up your whole life realizing that you're not going to win the arm wrestling match with all of the guys in your school, high school, by middle school, right, the the boys are going to be generally stronger than you, then your approach to solving physical problems is going to likely be different. You You develop heuristics for approaching problems that are different than kicking down the door to solve the problem. Or, you know, you have to learn negotiation skills and communication skills. Um, even, you know, walking down the street late at night, you learn the way that you deal with people is going to be different based on whether you're a man or a woman and, you know, whether you're big or small and all of that. And so those factors come into play when you're working in a partnership. Uh, you know, two people, one person who's really big and has never been intimidated by anyone, one person who's really small who's had to watch their back a lot, you know, late at night, those two people will approach a problem very differently. And together, their brains can add up to a third solution, potentially, that no one ever thought of. And we have this, you know, example kind of over and over in the history of society and government. And, and my favorite one is... Uh, you know, one that people talk about a lot now since the musical Hamilton, but we had this sort of ideal, these two guys, very different perspectives, very different approaches to how they think we should, you know, create a country and govern it. Um, they have this argument, Jefferson and Hamilton, about the capital, where it should go, and, you know, the power that should be there. And, uh, you know, Hamilton wanted it to be in his adopted hometown of New York City, and Jefferson wanted it to be in, uh, you know, rural uh, Virginia, where he had land, and, and they both had very different visions for kind of what this country would turn out to be. And uh, and they go into a room together, and they come out with a third option that hey, we'll have the financial capital be in New York, and we'll have the seat of government be separate from that, and it'll be down in Virginia, and we'll plan a city around the government, and uh, and we'll actually make a country that has space for both the sort of urban. Um, city ideal where invention can happen and where we can welcome everyone uh, no matter who you are and we'll also have this rural agrarian I ideal where you know all of the the wonderful things that that happen outside of the city can happen and, and we can create a country where we have a mix of that and where we value that and the way we set up the the capital can uh can sort of be an example of that but also help with that you know, they go into a room with these very strong opinions. They come out with this option that actually has served us really well for, you know, a couple hundred years. And, uh, and this, uh, you know, this is a, an example of the product of, you know, different heads uh, becoming better than one. But most of the time when we're working on problems, we're either working with people who are too similar to us, working with our friends or people we grew up with, you know, whoever's around that we get along with. And that's why we – you know, we form the group or uh, we, you know, we have intellectual opponents and we don't pay attention to them or we don't think of them as part of our team. We don't pull them in uh, or the goal becomes get rid of them, smash them down, squash, you know, their voice or, you know, or even destroy them so that we can get our way. And, uh, you know, the, one of the main things that, kind of comes out of this exploration of two heads being only better than one if they're different is how much we need people who don't agree with us and how we should consider those people part of our team. Now, those people need to also not be bent on destroying us, <laughs> but mm -hmm. if we can kind of get to this ideal again that, uh, that our rivals, our opponents, if we keep things about ideas that we can all make each other better, we can push the whole, you know, the whole party, the whole game forward. 
Um, that's really powerful. But most of the time, yeah, group work, we're, we're working together because we have to because the job's big. We're not getting exponentially better together. We're just uh, getting bigger and, and, you know, we're working on big projects and that's just sort of what it takes. But there is this sort of dream that can come about. Well, on that note, we are going to pause here for a quick break. We've been speaking with Shane Snow about his new book, Dream Teams. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne. We'll be right back after these messages. Internationally recognized and award-winning author Judy Goodman works and teaches outside the box of limited thinking. Working with people from every walk of life, her goal is to empower you to be the best you can be, no matter what the challenge is. Born with the gift of seeing beyond our normal vision, she has an extraordinary gift of working with every challenge. Teaching beyond conventional wisdom, her work is described as life-changing. Visit JudyGoodman.com. That's JudyGoodman.com. There comes a moment when you realize you're somewhere special, when you discover that each beautiful creature that you see has been rescued from a life of absolute horror and brought to this incredibly free place. Here's where their lives were forever changed and where yours will as well. Discover over 500 tigers, bears, and lions at the brand new visitor center at the Wild Animal Sanctuary just outside Denver. For more information, visit wildanimalsanctuary.org. Discover true freedom at the Wild Animal Sanctuary. Have you ever had the sense that your thoughts might actually be doing something? Ancient secrets of manifesting have been masterfully revealed in the award-winning book Manifesting 123 by Ken Elliott. For the first time, the author's experiences and stories in this book describe exactly how your thoughts can create anything. You've been doing this all your life, but it's never been fully explained for you until now. Visit Manifesting123.com for more information today. Manifesting123.com There are nearly 2 million Americans living with amputation. Many live right here in San Antonio. Becoming an amputee can be scary, frustrating, isolating, but there's no reason to feel alone. The San Antonio Amputee Foundation is here to help support you and guide you toward resources such as home and car modifications and even prosthetic limbs. For more information or to make a donation, visit saamputee.org. We'll help you live a full, active life, one step at a time. San Antonio Amputee Foundation, healing limbs, hearts, and souls. Welcome back to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted that we're spending this time together and we get to spend this next half of the show with Shane Snow and talk about his book, Dream Teams. Well, and I love how in your book you talk about brainstorming and how as a group gets larger, how it's really doing a disservice to you know the the people within the group in some ways. Um, you know, brainstorming is one of those fascinating things that. Uh, do you know the history of of where the word even comes from? No, I'd love for you to share it. Yeah, so it's I want to say it's the the 40s or 50s, maybe maybe it's even the 30s. Um, the metaphor was it was some some guy some researcher who said if uh, if we think of ideas, coming up with ideas, as storming a castle, you don't storm a castle with one person. 
that's ridiculous. You can't you can't you know overrun the castle with one person. So if we get enough people, we can all storm the castle and we'll all run over the the walls and someone will make it inside and someone will have a you know the will win basically. So the idea of brainstorming it's not like a storm like thunderclouds. It's actually like storming you know like a battle. And uh, and the idea was you get enough people together that they'll do this. So brainstorming originally wasn't even – it was just about like sort of strength in numbers for ideas, almost like crowdsourcing. Um, it wasn't about uh, feeding – the way that we think of it now is uh, you, know, you get a group of people around a table and they feed off each other's ideas and they come up with something better. It turns out that uh, that, that second thing, the thing we turned brainstorming into – almost never works as promised. They've done research over and over again. Um, I have this, uh, I do slides on this sometimes when I, I give talks at the companies and uh, I have this series of stock photos that I call white guy leads brainstorm session. Because if you look at brainstorming, it's always like some you know, 30-year-old white guy with great hair drawing on a whiteboard wall, this you know, multicultural group looks on in awe, ready with their ideas. <laughs> so it's like tons and tons of these photos, it's ridiculous. Um, but uh, brainstorming groups, when they researchers put people together, smart people, in a room around a table and say, come up with ideas about whatever topic, and uh, and they'll say things like, no ideas, a bad idea, you know, let's just let's storm the castle, let's get all your ideas out, you know, everything that comes to mind, let's just get it out there. A group of people doing that will come up with not only fewer ideas, but fewer good ideas than the same people doing that same process by themselves and then just adding up your list. So, and, and it's crazy that this happens, but it turns out that when you're in a group coming up with ideas, subconsciously, maybe even consciously, but always subconsciously, uh, your need to be accepted by the group, to not get kicked out of the tribe, and, and your own sort of personal filter of is this idea too far? Is this going to actually be safe for me to express? Your, your goal of you know, not, uh, not looking like an idiot or not getting kicked out or not saying something that could get you in trouble actually will suppress some of your more creative ideas. When you're not in a room full of people, you'll actually put some of those ideas out on paper. You'll be more likely to. Um, because there's no one around for you, to, for you to have that sort of judgment, even if you know you're going to give that sheet of paper to the group later and add them all up. But they show this over and over and over again. But there's, uh, there's a few tricks you can do to actually make a group brainstorm process superior. I actually have a whole sort of progression of them that I can describe. Uh, better thing to do than sitting around a table and coming up with ideas together is having people come up with ideas on their own. Even better than that, is to uh, have them come up with ideas on their own and then come together and debate their best ideas, actually poke holes in the ideas. So the whole thing that no idea is a bad idea, not true. Some ideas are bad ideas. You should explore them and you should poke holes with them and you should argue about them. That actually is what makes ideas get better. Even better than that, have that group of people be very different from each other. Um, you want different perspectives and different disciplines and, and heuristics coming to the table, which means that it pays to have a lot of demographic diversity in this group. Uh, you want those people to be as different as possible so you maximize the chances of, uh, of unique ideas that you can then have do battle and come up with something better. Even better than that is you do that process, but you start everyone off with a, a prompt, like a, a crazy prompt 
that uh, that sort of sets the boundaries of of what's safe to sort of explore. So there's these great studies where they have these brainstorming groups and they say, uh, you know, we're coming up with ideas for a uh, you know a budgeting app for your phone to remind you to budget better. And any idea, you know, we want all your ideas. Uh, here's some ideas, you know, that we've come up with so far. Uh, one is uh, it's a little wrist band, little wrist watch that you wear that will remind you if you you forget to do your budgeting, uh, you know, on time. It'll remind you because it has a little razor blade underneath it that will cut your wrist every time that you are late. And if you you're late a lot, it'll cut your wrist real bad, and uh, and you're you know you'll probably bleed out. So when they start the brainstorming exercise with something like that, that everyone's like, wow, that, you know, of course we're not going to do that. That's crazy. Um, That's literally insane. Uh, People will come up with better ideas because you've now set sort of a boundary that's further out than anyone would be willing to go. So it's now safe to kind of explore ideas in between what you think is normal and uh, and this crazy thing we just established. Um, Even better than all that is do all of that, but also add – some real wild cards to the mix. Um, so they've done experiments in brainstorming where all they do is they have the same group of people that's going to come up with just mediocre ideas. They add someone who's a little nuts to the group or, or an actor who's pretending to be like some sort of zany Gary Busey-like character. Um, and, uh, and that group will also come up with better ideas. Even better than that, and I'll, I'll stop talking about brainstorming after this. Even better than that is that same group of people do one-on-one brainstorm sessions or debates with them. So the person who's leading the group, instead of gathering everyone around, ask everyone to come up with ideas, to explore ideas, and then sit down with them one-on-one in a setting that's not your office, that's not a place where you have a, a power dynamic or where you can feel like you're, you're sort of out of your – you're a little detached from your uh, normal you know, workspace – go to a coffee shop somewhere else, travel somewhere, you know, a little distance, and uh, and then have a one-on-one debate where you try to poke holes in all the ideas that you've come up with. And what this allows you to do is uh, is actually explore more intellectual territory than it would be safe to do in a group because no one's around to call you out if you say something wrong or bad. No one's around to say that you're, you're dumb. You have sort of the safety and this, you know, two people – being vulnerable with their ideas, and as the, the leader or the instigator, you need to sort of start by being vulnerable with your ideas. Um, but, uh, but no one's going to be around to, you know, to quote you and put it on Twitter and ruin your life if you say something that's, uh, you know, that's not good. So you need to go into the risky territory in order to come up with better ideas. But it's that debate part of uh, you know, arguing about the ideas that actually makes those two heads become better together. So if you go to each person, you individually do that until you can sort of come up with the refined better ideas, then you can bring that to the group and, and you can uh, have uh, you know, a group debate. But, uh, but you want to give yourself the maximum chance of exploring the most territory and, uh, and putting it through the refiner's fire before you, you throw it out to a group to say, all right, who's got a good idea? Yeah, who's, who's got something? Well, and there also seems to be – you know, where people have to have some open-mindedness and not take things personally, you know, during this process, you know, where they come up with an idea. It's not something that's like, gosh, this is my idea. It's the best idea there is. I mean, they have to have a willingness to be open-minded to other points of view. Yes. I think if there's one skill that every person on the planet should learn and can get better at that will change everything about this world, it would be 
something called intellectual humility. Something I get into in, in the book. Intellectual humility is sort of the cousin of open-mindedness. It's actually basically four-fifths of open-mindedness, and I'll kind of explain what it is. But you're right that if you you can have a wonderful war of ideas, and if no one's willing to change their mind or to let go of their idea, or if everything's too attached to your ego or your identity, that you just no one changes, then that war of ideas is no good. So you can have all the ingredients, you can mix them right, but then if you know you don't put the cake in the oven, right, <laughs> then and and allow it to change its properties, then it, you're not going to have a cake. And um, and so what intellectual humility is. It's this thing that, that uh, philosophers have been talking about for years, and psychologists just now can actually measure it as of last year. It's uh, four things. It's respecting other people's viewpoints. It's not being overconfident intellectually. So it's not being too confident about how right you are about things. It's separating your ego from your intellect. So not, being, not having it be too painful ego-wise when you're proven wrong. And then being willing to revise your viewpoints uh, in light of new information. So this is not to say that you just sort of waffle anytime you hear something new. It's, uh, it's being smart about when you should revise your viewpoint, but having respect for any point of view and, uh, and, and detaching it from your, your ego and your identity. Now, when you add to this a willingness to try new things, suddenly you have a pretty good picture of what it means to be open-minded. And, uh, you know, if, if you're willing to change your mind about, you know, pickle ice cream, pickle-flavored ice cream, but you never – are willing to try pickle-flavored ice cream. You're not really open-minded. So uh, this intellectual humility thing, we just sort of had this breakthrough last year where we now have an assessment that's been academically approved and published where you can, you can actually find out how you score on all of these dimensions. And it turns out that for me in particular, separating my ego from my intellect is something I do very poorly. I'm below average on that, which basically means uh, you know, I can I respect other people's viewpoints for the most part, and I can change my mind a lot. That's kind of my job, is to learn things and change my mind and help convince other people. But it hurts when I am proven wrong, and uh, and it crushes my ego a little bit. And I, you know, it it actually affects me a lot. So it's something that I need to work on. But if imagine if everyone that you know, if every member of a marriage, right, if every spouse had this ability to do all of these things. Imagine if every teammate, you know, in a company, everyone who worked in a company could do these things. Imagine if every boss was willing to respect all viewpoints and not have too much of an ego and, you know, change their mind when necessary. Imagine if Congress all had this. How much of a better place we would have. Uh, that's why I say it's the kind of the, the main skill that we can work on to be good at collaborating is, uh, you know, we all should – you know, keep educating ourselves, keep learning things, you know, uh, so that we can bring more to the table when we're working on things that are important. But the meta skill that makes it all worthwhile or for nothing is this ability to change our minds and to respect and be curious about other people's different ways of thinking. Uh, if we can do that, then I think we can go a long way towards getting better. I wouldn't be surprised if someone sets up a GoFundMe to make sure every member of Congress has a copy of your book. I, I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. Well, and so could, to kind of touch on this, I mean, you talk about how the different, you know, it's our differences that we really should be celebrating in many ways, how that really helps to, you know, just kind of further the collaboration we have in these teams. 
And I love you have a quote in your book. In Dream Teens, we've seen that extraordinary co- collaboration are powered by differences. And I love that because a lot of times people think they have to conform in order to uh, contribute. Yeah, it's – and there's also – you know, the, there's a few sort of talking lines, I guess, that we have when it comes to differences or, you know, even worse, the word diversity, which is just, you know, another way of saying differences. But it, in today's culture, it sort of rhymes with hot-button, you know, issues like race. Um, but uh, the differences, you know, we talk about uh, tolerating each other's differences, like they're this thing that is unpleasant that we got to, you know, we got to deal with and then, you know, and then we'll be okay. And then some people who are a little more sort of further along in their thinking will talk about celebrating differences. That, hey, everything that's different about us is wonderful and it's nice and, you know, variety is the spice of life and all that. But I think we can go a step further and, you know, and, and everything that we've been talking about and all the research proves this, that it's not just about celebrating differences, but actually they're the fuel that makes all the wonderful possibilities in the world that, uh, you know, kind of everything that that we've been talking about. But every breakthrough in history has been become, because someone has thought differently. And those people have thought differently together, right? And it's when creativity is all about connecting things that are not the same, that haven't been connected before. And, and that's all any of this is, you know, two people who are very different along whatever dimension, whether it's visible or, or just inside their heads, they have all of this possibility. That's, that's the potential energy for making breakthroughs. It's also the potential energy for breaking down and, you know, uh, and having problems. But, uh, but like any energy source, it can be used for, for good or for ill. And I, I love thinking about it that way, because then suddenly the conversation around differences and you know, demographic diversity and, and anything, even down to you know, immigrants and people moving in that are not like us and don't have our way of life or whatever you know, that people fret about, suddenly that conversation changes from one about uh, morality and the right thing to do, which is important and we need that, but it also now has a pragmatic aspect to it too. Not only should we be nice to everyone and include people and welcome immigrants to our cities and, you know, and, and realize that we're all humans and, and we all have dreams and, and we should encourage that, uh, but also we should say, hey, please, we want you and your different ways of thinking to join our team because that's what's going to make us better. And, uh, and so, you know, this get, it, it, I, I think it, it helps us get people on board who are uh, not as uh, not you know they the the moral case for valuing differences doesn't quite appeal or you know or, or they're like we get it now if there's a pragmatic case that we can make and have made for why differences are going to help you and uh, that that becomes really interesting and really powerful and and I, I just think also it feels good you know to 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 realize that that's that's the truth I think deep down we all kind of know that. We're afraid of, you know, differences because we're all, we're all, you know, humans have this sort of scarcity mentality. You know, the food's going to run out and the jobs are going to go away and, you know, we have to compete and fight for our resources. But we can make more resources and make things better for everyone 
if we, uh, instead of trying to compete with each other and for those resources, we realize that together we can actually make things amazing. And this is how humans won planet Earth. It's how we invented cities and technology in the first place. And, you know, uh, I think it's, uh, it's an awesome lesson that that's what makes us great is our differences. It's not something that we need to avoid or be afraid of or tolerate. And when you then apply this to Know, companies or, or any kind of team, suddenly you realize that there's another myth that we've had for a long time that we can get rid of, which is this idea of culture fit, that, hey, you, you get a group of people and you make them fit because you know, we think that's important. It turns out that, that not fitting is the thing that's important. We, all, we, you know, we need to sort of be working together on, on the same thing that we care about. We need to have a purpose that we all love and we are all passionate about. That's important. Otherwise, you'll kind of have chaos. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the corporate world should ban the term culture fit and, uh, and start talking about culture ad, culture contribution, more, you know, more ingredients to make the, uh, you know, the, the cake or the, the potluck or the buffet or whatever better and more interesting. Um, that's, uh, that's a big change that we need to make, and we now have an excuse to make. Oh, I think every company needs to make it, because I can't tell you when I worked in the corporate world, how often I was involved in teams that really you know, were, were supposed to work together, but that was very far from the truth of the reality of what was happening. I mean, most of the time the manager um, had a really ego, had a big ego, or you had different people on the team that were trying to pull each other down. And so no one ever really kind of got to whatever that next level was supposed to be. And so you can kind of see where, you know, Fortune 500 companies, you know, really need not only your book, but I mean, as a manager, as a, a former manager, I mean, I would have a book like yours. This would be like a gold mine. I'd pass this out to everyone that worked with me. You know? I, I, I thank you. I'm, I hope that people do that. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to sell books. That, that sounds like yeah. a great idea to me. Well, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we sort of take for granted in leadership and in, in companies that I do think we need to flip on on its head. The the culture fit thing is really concerning because all of the, every Fortune 500 company now has a a diversity hiring program where they you know they want to hire people out of college or you know just even from other you know mid level of their careers from different backgrounds different genders and races and you know ethnic uh, origins and uh, and all these things that are, are sort of the visible side of of differences. And a lot of companies are doing this for PR reasons, you know, because they're getting in trouble or because they have these work environments where people are not happy or they're, you know, excluded and, and that's not good. Um, but they, they also, some companies are coming around to saying, hey, if we, we have a lot of, you know, differences in our ranks, then, uh, then maybe we will be more creative or solve problems better. Some companies are starting to come around to that. But the thing that they do is then they say, hey, you're hired, now fit, now Think this way, and and mm-hmm. I I interviewed someone who's a you know managing director at one of the the biggest banks in the world, and she and we had dinner, and she fretted about this problem, and and then she went to the other biggest bank in the world, and the same thing happened, but she said we hire all these kids, you know, out of school from all these different backgrounds, and uh, you know, for this diversity thing, and then I watched them after not even a year slowly stop speaking up, slowly stop expressing their unique point of view that, you know, we hired them for 
and start talking like everyone else in the company because they realize that it's not safe to be different and to express themselves. And so you, you just got all this potential energy and you squashed it right out. And she was fretting about, you know, this is a problem that, you know, the next step of what we do after we, you know, we get the, you know, the ingredients, the chemistry is about ingredients and what you do with them, right? So the next step after you get the ingredients is not blowing it, <laughs> basically. And this is where managers and leaders, I think, really need this message that your job as a leader should not be about making all the decisions, being, you know, having your, your minions go find information so you can make all the calls and be the hero. Your job as a leader or manager is to get people who give you the best chance of making better decisions and finding new solutions to problems. Give them all the information you can. Empower them. Allow them the freedom to work how they want, to think how they want, in exchange for the accountability of helping push the team better and coming up with better ideas. And let them make the decisions. You know, give them the power and the tools and the resources to change the things that need to be changed, and and then give them the credit and all that, and, and help them in their careers. But it's it's not about the manager being this sort of hero figure anymore. It's it's going to be it needs to be more about leading from the shadows and realizing that your yeah. team is going to be what makes you great, not you with these people doing your bidding. And, you know, it's going to be a long time to change that because it's just so much of our education, our management revolves around kind of that old paradigm. But I, I think we start to change that. We're going to start to see a lot more innovation in a lot of companies. And there are companies that are great examples of this. You know, Google is one of, you know, those rare companies that despite getting huger and huger and huger still maintains this sort of band of misfits ethos um, to some degree. You know, they're not without problems. But, uh, but they, you know, all they say to people is don't be evil and let's organize the world's information. And then besides that, they say we want smart people who are going to bring different things and, uh, and let's make it happen. And everyone that you meet that works at Google, you know, is smart and quirky and different and weird. And, you know, I, I say this as a big generalization, but, but there are companies that are starting to do this better and better. And, you know, a big part of it is having people at the top of the company who are also coming from different backgrounds and getting that, you know, Google, you know, the, the founders, they went to school together, but, you know, once a Russian immigrant, um, they had historically, you know, had a lot of women in the high ranks in the early days, which was, you know, very important for, you know, for building out a, a robust team and, and all that. And so, you know, again, not the perfect example in all ways, you know, at, at all times, but, but that's more of the mentality that we need rather than squashing out, you know, the the differences and making people fit the culture and rather than having our leaders, you know, have to be the the decision maker and the the hero that gets all the credit and, and having their ego sort of on the line and their bonuses on the line for doing that. Well, gosh, I mean, you're such a you, – you just provide such a wealth of information on this topic, and I'm so glad we were able to spend this time together, um, Shane. You know, so where can our listeners connect with you be part of your community, and also learn more about Dream Team. Uh, the easiest way is just my website. It's my name, shanesnow.com. You can kind of get to everything from there, including contacting me, and you can find out more about the book. There's a button on the front page that says, do not press this button. Whatever you do, do not press it. Uh-oh. I just That's pressed the button. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so you're a rule breaker like me. 
Um, <laughs> if you press the button, you have to do what the button tells you to do afterwards. That's that's the, the price. <laughs> well, do you know what? The, the cool thing is I have, and I highly suggest if you're a curious mind to do the same. You also have the snow report, which is pretty awesome. So I highly suggest people sign up for that and be part of your community. Shane, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. Thank you. You've been a wonderful host, and uh, thanks for letting me talk about these things that I love. Thank you so much, Shane. It's been such an honor to spend this time with you, and of course, to talk about your new book, Dream Teams. So again, if you want to connect with Shane, you can at his website, shanesnow.com. His book, Dream Teams, is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and of course, all major retailers. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne. And remember, make every moment count. In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Mary Ann airs every Thursday, Friday, and Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.